Well, hello again. Um, I uh, am looking forward to doing part two for our uh, presentation on revival. And this one is on facilitating and guarding what God is doing in revival. And uh, I had previously um, put pictures in my books again because I know that um, people are uh, probably new to this time and didn't go to the first one, but they're, they're out here. So my husband just reported that we have no more books. Um, but if you are interested in any of my books, just Google on Amazon for Carolyn Tennant and they'll both come up and you can get them on Amazon. Um, this is my other one on Keys to the Apostolic and Prophetic. And again, if you um, weren't in the first session, if you email me, you can get my slides. So I'm happy to send that to you so you don't have to take pictures. There are a lot of you for, we're here for the first one, I can tell. Um, so this section, I want to talk about how to successfully facilitate and um, guide a revival. And so I decided that in order to talk about how we um, facilitate a revival, I would take some lessons from some of the other, um, from just a couple of people who actually led revivals. Uh, this uh, first one that I wanna talk about, I mentioned Re Azusa Street in the last section, but I wanna talk about William Seymour, who himself uh, is the person who led the revival uh, for Azusa Street. And this occurred from 1906 to 1915, but um, as you might know, uh, William Seymour was uh, a black one-eyed um, preacher. He uh, wasn't actually allowed, he went to Parham's um, Bible school, but he wasn't allowed into the classes. He had to sit outside the room. Um, it was the time when there was a huge amount, unfortunately, um, of uh, inappropriate Christian behavior towards people. Um, I guess that's the best way of saying it. So uh, he had a hunger for God. Um, he started to talk about and preach uh, the whole thing on um, speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit for today before he himself had had the experience. Uh, he was meeting in, uh, on Bonnie Bray Street. Uh, he was, um, it was, a number of people got baptized there. He still wasn't baptized in the Spirit, but then he kept seeking God and, and he finally was. The crowds at this little house on Bonnie Bray Street, you can still visit that particular house. Um, you can't, the Azusa Street Mission, unfortunately, is on a cement corner. I've been there, but the mission is no longer there. Um, but he, um, in, the, in the little house, it got too, too many crowds. And so they found a, an old, a very old building. And it was this building that you see here. It was not in good condition at all. It had been used for a while as a livery stable um, and a storage area. And there was a tenement house above it. It had originally been built as a African Methodist Episcopal Church in AME, if you're familiar with that particular um, group. And uh, down below uh, they met and then this, there was this tenement um, house above. So they um, purchased this 
And this small and rather uh, uh, meager building is where the Azusa Street Revival comes. We do not have to have a big, beautiful building and perfect conditions in order to have a revival. Our history comes from um, poverty, uh, basically, and um, in, in as far as our AG history and, and Azusa Street. And they cleared out the tenement house above, and they left the room down on the bottom for the meetings. Um, and then they had the top area as a prayer area, so people would go and tarry and wait for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's part of our problem today, by the way. People are not getting baptized in the Holy Spirit because they, we don't talk about tarrying. We don't talk about waiting. We expect an instant something to happen, and if it doesn't, we give up. Um, people just need to learn how to seek the face of God, and um, that comes for revival also. Uh, so I, I believe that, uh, that they were very, uh, they, they took two chairs where the brack had been broken off and covered them with planks. And that was where people knelt and prayed up there. There were a couple of those kinds of things up in the um, upper room. Uh, William Seymour himself was very humble. Uh, he said, let us honor the blood of Jesus Christ every moment of our lives and we will be sweet in our souls. And that is what he really did. Um, he was such a humble person. He felt that all of the glory needed to be going to God. And he did not take center stage in anything in the Azusa Street Revival. In fact, um, it's said that he would um, sit during the services. He would sit in front and he would put him, his head in a box. And I've heard various um, ways of explaining this. Um, and I'm not sure which is correct. I, I've heard that it was a shoebox, like a big shoebox, um, that it was like in the, a box that was put into like a podium so he could like, um, I, I'm, I'm not really sure what the situation was. Suffice it to say that he hid himself um, away, kind of, and he didn't look around, he didn't always until he felt the spirit wanted him to. Um, he just took a low position. And I think in revival, um, one of the ways of facilitating revival is to drop our ego. <laughs> um, we, we, we need to go back into um, humility. We need to wait on the Lord. Um, we need to want him to get all of the glory entirely. And um, that was uh, William Seymour's whole way of doing things. He was very, very much into prayer and into the Word of God. Um, when services weren't being held there, um, he would uh, go upstairs to that room I was talking about, and he would pray for hours. Um, he really uh, read the Word um, and knew the Word and judged what was going on in the revival according to the Word. Um, he was very well known for this. Uh, the building itself, as I mentioned, was uh, kind of a meager tenement type thing um, but the Shekinah glory was very much on that place and the worship was amazing they had no instruments whatsoever um, they it would just be a cappella, and it would be according to the spirit and in actuality a lot of the testimonies talk about the fact that um, the heavenly choirs um, led it 
Yeah, you heard that right. <laughs> so what they're basically saying is that some of them saw them, some of them saw angels, and the angels would be singing, and the people would join in with what the angels were singing or join in and singing in tongues. Um, it was an amazing thing. And, or somebody, if they felt that they, by the Spirit that they had to be led, um, you know, that they were led to lead in a song would do that. But there were no more musical instruments. You're not going to find a worship band up in front. And they waited on the Lord. Um, there was lots of healings and miracles that occurred during this particular revival. Um, so many amazing stories. Uh, Xenoglossalalia, I don't have time to get into all of this, but um, you know, where you speak in a tongue of uh, an actual language, that's called xenoglossalalia, and our tongues are glossolalia. Again, I don't have time to explain. If that doesn't make any sense, you forget it. But <laughs> there, there, the, in xenoglossalalia, the people, there were actually people who came in from um, like different places all over the world. And there was this one guy who was in LA. He actually went to debunk the revival. He was a journalist. He was going to write a bad story, but he decided to go. And some lady spoke in his language. He was from actually the Ukraine, and he was in a small um, town um, that was very distant from other towns, and they had their own dialect. And he, this lady actually sp spoke in tongues in his dialect, not, she didn't know it, and um, actually said what had happened in his life and his sins. And he got really shook up and came up to her and said, um, you know, how do you know, how do you know this dialect? And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and um, basically he gave his life to the Lord immediately because, you know, it had been a strong sign to him. So this place of our beginnings, you know, revival Drop the ego, drop the show. Let God work. Just do what he wants to do. And um, as the spirit moves, God is going to get a hold of people's lives. And let the spirit move. Let the presence be there. Let God do the work. And the other, another revival I wanted to briefly talk about was um, the revival in the Hebrides in Scotland. Um, this happened in the mid-1900s, and this is a very interesting revival. Um, my husband and I have actually been out on the Hebrides. Um, we went up into Scotland, and where, if you can see on the map where it says Stonaway, um, up on the island that's on the northwest side, that is where um, the island of Harris and Lewis, um, where the revival occurred. Um, it, there were two tribes, so the Lewis tribe and the Harris tribe, and they didn't always get along together. But this is a really, really beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, it's just incredible. And the Harris area, the Harris tribe, was really well known for Harris Tweed. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but it's, it's very famous, and they have little cottages all over where they actually do 
um, the weaving. And, and I'm showing this to you because, um, you know, the, uh, again, this place is kind of, it's out, like it took a, a couple hours to get off of the Isle of Skye and take the ferry out there. And, you know, it's, it's out in the middle of nowhere and it's relatively poverty stricken. In fact, a lot of the houses are actually um, like peat cottages made out of peat um, from the ground. And um, it's a very humble area. And this started because of two little um, ladies um, who actually uh, prayed in the revival. They felt a huge burden that the youth of the um, church were leaving the area and they started to pray. Peggy um, is on the left of this picture. She was blind and she was 84 years old. And Christine is on the right side. This is Duncan Campbell, who um, was the evangelist who was used to start the revival there. But um, Christine was arthritic, uh, actually almost bent over in half, they say, with arthritis. She was 82. And they, um, Christine and Peggy um, Smith, um, both were the prayer warriors. They felt so strong that um, they called their pastor and said, God wants to bring a revival, and I suggest that you bring, you know, you and the deacons start praying for this. And uh, they um, got a barn, and they started to pray through, um, through the night, basically. And in, finally, after a number of times of this, um, one night, the um, youngest deacon um, read a Bible verse, and um, he started, he, he was, it's the one about, are my, about your hands being clean before God, and he started to weep, and he said, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And so he applied the verse to himself and repented of his sin, and he fell out in the spirit and the spirit just entered that barn and that was actually the start um, of, of, of the revival. Um, the pastor went to the sisters and said, God met us and they said, we know we were on our knees praying. Um, remember their condition and their age. They were on their knees praying um, when, when the spirit came into the barn and we know the spirit came into the barn. And um, so he said, well, what do you think we should do next? And they said, well, we feel you should get Duncan Campbell. And um, he was a revivalist, but not on that island at all. He was on the mainland of Scotland. So the pastor um, wrote to him and he wrote back and said, I'm sorry, I can't come when he, the sisters had a date that it should start. And um, he said, I can't come, I'm already booked up. And they said, well, that's what man says, but God says. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> so what happened next was that um, Duncan Campbell, the place where he was supposed to speak, where he was booked up, double booked two conferences in, a, in that town somehow, right? I mean, the, there were two people double booked the hotels. And so that cancel was, um, that, that time was canceled. 
Do you not love it? So he appeared on the island on the date that they said, and um, revival um, just broke out all over the island. Um, I, I could tell stories till I was blue in the face on this revival. It's absolutely wonderful. You should read about it. And this is um, Duncan Campbell himself. He was a really great guy, but one time I got a hold of a tape, and he had been teaching, because um, it wasn't that really that long ago. He's passed away now, but he had been teaching, and they had taped it. And here is what he said on that tape, and I wish I had a Scottish accent, <laughs> and I think I'm going to try. <laughs> I would like to make it perfectly clear that I did not bring revival to the Hebrides. It has grieved me beyond words to hear people talk and write about the man who brought revival to the Hebrides. My dear people, I didn't do that. I don't carry revival around in my pocket. One of my favorite lines ever. Revival was there before I ever set foot on the island. It began in a gracious awareness of God sweeping through the parish of Barvis. Revival is God in the community. And suddenly, the community becomes God conscious before a word is said by any man representing any special effort. Total humility again. I don't carry revival around in my pocket. And no man does. It's a sovereign move of God. One Ray and I were there. Um, I had contacted uh, the person in charge of our B&B, and I said, you know, is, do you happen to know if there was anybody alive from that revival that I could talk to while we're there? And she said, well, I'm actually from England, and so I've come to live here now. But she said, so I don't know. I don't even know about the revival, but I'll see what I can find out. So she went to the library, and bless her heart, she talked the librarian into giving her archival material, because she was local, right? So she, I came in, and she showed us to our room, and she said, over there on the table is a couple of stacks of material that the archivist at the library sent for you to look at. And I went, <laughs> and Ray said, I'll talk to you when this is all over. <laughs> so one of the things that was in the pile was a tape. And we, it was a few years ago, so it, there were tapes in the cars. And um, I actually, we had rented a car on the island when we got there so we could drive around and look at things. And I popped the tape in after church on Sunday. And by the way, everybody goes to church on Sunday and everything is still closed on the island. Everything. There are no planes. There are no ferries. There is not a single, um, the rest, only the restaurants in the hotels are open. No other restaurants, nothing, nothing, no gas stations are open in the whole island. <laughs> so we gassed up ahead of time. And after church, we put in the tape, and we started just driving around randomly. Would you not know that 
it followed the testimonies on the tape, followed our path. Like, what are the odds? Like, we would go from town to town, and they would say what happened in that town, and we were driving through the town. I mean, it was like the craziest thing in the whole world. So we get to this one town, and here's the church. And I said, wait, wait, they're talking about it. Just, there's the church. And Ray pulled over. Sweetie. And he said, we listened to the, to the testimony. So here in this next picture is the town which is below the church see the church was on the hill and this is the town that's down by the water so the church wasn't by the water but somebody from this town came out they were having a, a meeting in the church and they were having prayer meeting that lasted i mean it was it was a regular meeting first and then people stayed to pray so it lasted for so long that it was about midnight so somebody couldn't sleep, walked out of their house, looked up at the church and said, oh my goodness, the roof is on fire of the church. And so he woke up, everybody else and all the rest of the homes, and they got their pails, their buckets, and started a bucket brigade, because that's the only thing you could do, passing the buckets up the, up the hill, pouring fire, you know, water on the fire, and they knocked on the door then you know i mean it's like you got to get out of here there's a fire and you know don't you know i mean ah! and so they came out and went and there was no fire on the roof whatsoever nothing was being burned up they were just praying inside Next. <laughs> the Welch Revival of 1904 to 05, which I've referred to a couple times, was started um, actually by the prayers and burden of one young man who was in Bible school. His name was Evan Roberts. And Evan Roberts um, just had such a burden for the other youth in um, his area. He was from Swansea. I've been to Swansea and um, seen this area. And Roberts was just so burdened down that he, he hardly could go to Bible school. I mean, you know, he, he couldn't concentrate. He was praying, he was, but he kept going back and weeping for his friends. And um, finally, he walked out of Bible school. He just said, I can't, I can't do this. And he went home and he continued to pray and finally felt led by the Spirit to talk to his pastor. Um, and this is the church uh, where he was. They um, actually, the pastor said, well, you, you can have a special meeting for the youth and you can be the one to talk to them. So he held a special meeting and the presence of God just came in in an amazing way. Um, this was actually a youth revival in um, Wales. I'm not saying that it didn't affect everybody across all of Wales, but it started out as a youth revival, started out in the youth group, and um, pretty soon it moved into the entire church, and um, then across the entire land of Wales. I mentioned to you already that Wales is the one where the bars um, shut down and, and there was no crime, and they gave the white gloves to the um, judges. Uh, but Roberts, um, Evan Roberts, actually felt that the Lord told him 
um, that he should believe for 100,000 souls. And that is incredible. I mean, you're thinking one young man who actually has a dream for 100,000 souls. Well, um, the 100,000 souls actually came into the kingdom in the first six months alone. And just, you know, that fast. The revival went on for several years, by the way, so um, there were many, many more. Uh, the estimates of those affected by this revival is at least 150,000, and some say as high as 250,000. Um, the miners um, got saved by the droves. That you know, it's a mining area in Wales. Um, they would get off of work and go to church. Um, they changed so much. They had been big drinkers, uh, so the fact that the bars closed down was really amazing. They would drink up their wages, and so they didn't have enough money to give um, to their wives hardly for food or anything like that, and um, it was bad. And the, the, after so many miners got, so many people got saved, so many miners got saved, um, the, they said it was the first Christmas that had ever actually been celebrated in Wales because the, they stopped drinking, and so they had money to actually have some food on the table for Christmas and to buy gifts for the kids. And it was the first year that after the, in, in, during the revival, uh, the first year that they had ever truly um, had revival. So um, there were so many people that got saved that were really famous. I think sometimes we don't understand the ripple effects of people um, who are saved in a revival. Uh, George and um, Stephen Jeffries, who later went on to found the Elam movement. Um, David Powell Williams, who was the founder of the Apostolic Pentecostal Church. It also had its effect on Reese Howell's Intercessor. If you've ever read that book, it's one of my favorite books. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's just excellent. That's the name of it. He, he was a Welchman and also lived in Swansea and was... Um, he and the Bible college students prayed through some of the wars of World War II, which actually shifted World War II. Um, and also David Lloyd-Jones, who later became the British Prime Minister. So uh, Rails also sparked revivals all over the world. Um, it was just amazing. In India, um, well, actually, just everywhere, uh, the Welsh revival uh, sparked more revivals. So... I think we can see a pattern of uh, people who uh, are humble, who do not want to take center stage, who want the presence of God to be strong. Now, um, what happens uh, when revivals get off track? Uh, and I think that there are two tactics that are used to derail a revival. And one of them is uh, Satan, Satan tries to sow tares, basically. And the other is human flesh. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I don't know, how do you start this? I mean, Satan can tempt people, and so he's probably involved with all of us, you know, but when human flesh gets involved, we've got a problem. So how do we, um, you know, how, as leaders, how do we actually help to guide and guard and safeguard a, a, a true revival? How do we do that? How do we discern what's of God and what isn't of God? Well, for one thing, we really need to know the Lord. I mean, you know, um, we need to know what he, 
what his personality is like and what he does and see through the results. Um, I, you know, in destroying God's work, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he wants God's revival work to stop since the purposes and results of revival tear down Satan's strongholds so that God's church can advance in powerful ways. So anytime true um, revival is being demeaned or halted or destroyed from any sector within the church or without, Satan's happy. Um, we, we really need to build up the work of God. I was um, per particularly disturbed over some of the negative comments I was running across in general regarding the Asbury revival because I think that was a definite revival. I mean, kids were repenting. Hello, what's wrong with this? And, you know, there, there's stuff, it was, they were changing. I mean, they were, they were testifying that they were being renewed, that they were shifting their emphasis, that they were giving up things that they shouldn't have been in in the first place, and talking about feeling such a call into the ministry. What, what, well, you, you were here last time, you know, in my last session. That's, that's the real thing. And I believe it was the real thing. So it really, you know, anytime you get somebody who's like bad-mouthing something that is the true work of God, I, I think you've got a satanic root. Because Satan just doesn't want that stuff to go on. So he's going to try to demean it. He's going to try to give a bad report uh, regarding it. And um, that's what was, what was happening. And it's what happens in any revival. You know, I'd rather to be charitable in a revival. But I, by the way, think you should discern, too. Um, you know, what is not and what is of God. And you need to lead that. Uh, you don't just sit back and, well, okay, so I'll let anything happen. But we should, in general, be glad that God is doing a work. And, and I think we should be positive that God is moving, even though it might not be something that is our style or the way we would do it or whatever. Who cares? Let, let God do what God wants to do. He's God. We don't have to play that role. And I think that also um, disunity is another area that is often sown. God continually calls us into the unity of the faith, and he warns us not to slander or malign our brothers and sisters in Christ. Romans 14, 19 states, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. You know, with Evan Roberts, there was a pastor of a large church in Wales that took on Evan Roberts and demeaned the revival and it so deflated Evan Roberts that he almost had a, a breakdown. Um, in, in fact, it's where the revival kind of stopped. That pastor was responsible, I think, for the quitting, the ending of the revival um, in, in Wales. And I sure wouldn't want that kind of a responsibility on my hands, I'm telling you. Um, and and it, Evan Roberts just, I mean, he was young and he was hurt. And, um, and he kind of gave up after that. So our criticism is not good. I mean, I, I think we need to live in unity with each other and, um, and, and keep the unity because Satan will always try to um, sow disunity in a revival. 
Also, um, anything that diverts attention from God is something else that Satan tries to sow. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should stay uh, the center of the revival. Whenever human ego and pride, disorder, excesses, extremes, exaggeration, sensationalism, or over-emotionalism work to divert people's attention from God, this portion of the activity should be stopped. Only God should be glorified. And whenever I see um, an exhibition of um, humanity, <laughs> you know, trying to draw attention to themselves in a revival, that, that needs to be stopped. It, it's, I, I, I remember I was in a meeting once and um, we had had a good worship time. People were up at the front um, and God was ministering to people and some people were laughing. And I think laughing in the spirit, I've seen that, I think it's in the spirit. I mean, I, I think people have been released and they find a joy, um, but it doesn't interrupt everything and it doesn't draw attention of everybody to that person. It's in a, the, a proper setting, if that makes sense. And in this case, um, the person who was in charge turned the, the meetings over to me because I was the speaker and there was a person still sitting down here who was laughing. And it felt like mocking laughing. Um, I, I, I said to myself, I, I'm discerning. It's like, I, I don't think that's in the spirit. And, and they wouldn't stop. And I said, let's pray. And I, I did that to try to stop her, you know, because I was supposed to be speaking and the person in charge hadn't stopped her. And, and she was still laughing, laughing more. And, and I thought, uh-uh. <laughs> so I asked her to be removed from the meetings. And I just give that as an example because if somebody is diverting attention from God and what needs to be next in, in the spirit, if I'm making sense, then it's not of God. And we need to do something about those sorts of things as leaders. We need to say, no, that's not right. We're going to stop this. We need to stop prophecies that are off. I'm totally for the prophetic, by the way. I teach on this all the time and work on the prophetic myself. But if they're off, they need to be stopped. We are in charge in the spirit, and God will give those of us in authority the ability to discern and to do what we need to do to keep the revival pure. And that's what we really want. And, and so we need to see these tactics that, that Satan uses. And if it's diverting attention from, from God himself... Um, or, or from the next thing that the Spirit is doing, then it should be um, stopped. Okay, error. During revival, Satan often tries to skew biblical truth, so false doctrine, overemphasize certain areas so scripture appears unbalanced, bring in warped theology, and take scriptures out of context and misuse them. By the way, I hope you study these more because I wish I had time to go into each and every one of them, but these are a strong list of things that you can look for that make something off. Um, you know, when, when the scripture's out of context, like that one I told you about earlier in my first session, um, you know, it's error. It is essential to know the word of God yourself. So one way of preparing for a revival is basically you, know the, you need to know the word of God. Just stay in the word of God so that you have a discernment of what is on and what is off. And um, that way you can identify false teaching. Um, 
if there's an emphasis on manifestations, there's a problem. Um, the revival gets, uh, revival gets off track when manifestations, signs, wonders, or miracles are overstressed. I, I believe that all of these things should be happening, but if people are seeking those instead of seeking God, then you've got a problem. Historic revivals have had a wide array of new and old manifestations as human beings come into the presence of God. However, these should not be pursued for their own sake. In other words, you don't go after the experience. You're going after God, and whatever experience happens, happens as a side effect, but it's not the main thing that you're looking for. We should focus on the goodness of God rather than on human activity or reactions. Counterfeiting and deception is another area. Human beings will sometimes try to produce copycat manifestations to confuse and deceive, so we need to perceive God's real work. When people try to manipulate and emulate the Holy Spirit, human flesh can spoil what God wants to accomplish. Pursue the work of God. I believe that um, I, I don't want to make anything happen. You know, I, I've been in many revival experiences. I've been a part of it. I've led things in that. I, but I'm not, going, I'm not the producer of something. I'm not going to do something that I think is going to produce a revival-like copy. Am I making sense here? Uh, I, I want the real thing. <laughs> and, and so we have to be very careful that we do not let that kind of thing happen so that, um, you know, we're almost trying to produce a revival in the flesh. It's got to be the power of the Spirit. Um, making light of the things of God is not appropriate. Whenever the holy things of God are treated with levity, humor, contempt, or neglect, this should be corrected. People leading revivals must maintain holy lives. And, you know, I, nothing that's holy about the Lord, like we don't laugh at communion. I mean, I have actually heard that happening. Um, that's not right. <laughs> Christ died for us. It, it, it's a celebration of what he did and, and gave to us, and it's, it's important we respect it and treasure it. And, and so we don't want to make light of the things of God. This is not right. Um, usurping authority. Revival gets off track when leaders do not listen to advice from those placed in proper authority over them, and especially when they don't take time to hear from God. Such leaders may become controlling and manipulative, insisting on their own way, demanding work from others, trying their own sensational methods rather than God's way, and promoting themselves. No person or religious affiliation can claim to own and run a revival since God himself is the instigator and sustainer. Now, it's really important, I think, for people who are leading a revival to stay under authority. Um, I happen to know people who have been confronted about things that um, some authority that I know has felt was not appropriate and didn't pay attention to it. And, and, and it actually brought the end and demise of that particular revival. Um, you know, the, your authority's there for a reason. It's a covering. So if somebody waves a red flag um, who's, who's in authority over you 
uh, don't get, oh, well, you know, I mean, you just don't know what's going on. I mean, you must not be for revival. That's actually the attitude that this person had. It's like, come on. I mean, that's a dangerous place to be, that we can't be corrected, that we can't have input. Um, we, we need to, to listen to those who are over us in authority. Also, there's the works of the flesh. Leaders must maintain the fruit of the spirit and not become prickly like thorn bushes in their relationships to others. I love that verse in Matthew 7 where it talks about, um, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit doesn't come off of, off of thorn bushes. Um, so I, when a person's prickly, they're not in the spirit. You, you, you can think of some of those that you have in your church. I mean, okay, next. The spirit... <laughs> continues his revival work as we keep in step with him but when we start moving in the flesh we war against the spirit sometimes the works of the flesh can be evidenced in social media where people um, show jealousy selfish ambition premature evaluation factious criticism and inaccurate information instead of god's desired perspectives we must begin and end in the spirit um, as Paul told us. Now, as I end here, um, keeping revival, it's our, it's our necessity as leaders to, once revival is happening, to keep it pure and unobstructed. And where we see Satan sowing tears, we need to stop it. We need to, we need to take care of it immediately. And when somebody is working in the flesh, we need to stop that. And, and when we do that, there is a safety that everybody feels under our leadership. You know, it, it's like, okay, um, he or she stopped that, therefore they're discerning. And, and, and people start to relax a little bit. Um, I, I have seen this done wonderfully well in a number of different situations. Uh, I, I remember one time I was in a revival that I hadn't been at and I didn't know what it was like and I just wanted to see. I wanted to sort it. I wanted to observe. I didn't want to just like go in and like experience it the first time. Am I making sense? Uh, I, I went back to experience it for myself because I felt it was trustworthy. But I wanted to watch. So I sat up in the front row of the balcony and I, I watched and at one point, there was a commotion over here, and I saw what was happening. Somebody was acting out in the flesh. Um, there was some stuff going on, and I, I saw it happening, and I thought, well, I wonder what they're going to do about it. And the next thing you know, the ushers, who were highly trained, came in and surrounded that person and helped the person get out of the room. And my reaction was good. That's great. I feel like I can trust this situation. And, you know, whenever there's somebody who is kind of trained to take care of problem things that are going on, there's a safety that everybody feels and deserves to feel as God moves. They have to know that somebody is there and somebody's in charge. So we as leaders need discernment, we need wisdom. And we need guardianship. We need to watch the guardianship of the revival to keep it pure and to have um, good stewardship 
of what God has given us as leaders that he's entrusted us with for our church. So I hope that's been helpful. I went through a lot fast, um, but uh, those are some things to, to watch for when true revival occurs, and I hope that was helpful for you. Thank you so much.